Welcome to the Loop Ventures Neurotech Podcast. This is Doug Clinton. On today's episode, we're joined by Tom Hughes from RCRI. Tom is the Senior Principal Advisor on Health Economics and Reimbursement at RCRI. We've spoken to another of RCRI's consultants before, Mary Beth Henderson, who is an expert on the regulatory side. Tom focuses on reimbursement, although there certainly is overlap as RCRI treats device development with a very holistic approach. Tom and I talk about how companies should think about their reimbursement strategy, the three pillars of reimbursement, coding, coverage, and payment, and the importance of developing evidence as part of a reimbursement strategy. And with that, I bring you Tom Hughes. All right, Tom, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you, Doug. So this episode will be about the reimbursement process. You know, we've talked a lot about the regulatory challenges that medical device companies face, and we've had RCRI's own Mary Beth Henderson on to talk about those as well. And so today, Tom Hughes is on, and the topic is medical reimbursement. And so to start, Tom, maybe give us a little bit of your background and just how you came to be an expert in the field of reimbursement. Thanks, Doug. That's a long winding road, but I've been in the medical device industry for about 25 years. Actually, before that, I started off as a health lawyer, and then I really liked to be here in Minneapolis, Minnesota, where we're chock full of medical technology companies, and I was really hoping to get into that area, and so I had an opportunity through a local trade association called Medical Alley to get involved, and they hired me to help oversee their government affairs program at the state level, and from there, I was recruited into a medical device company and did lobbying in Washington and oversaw the payer relations teams and got to team there and got to know some of the people on the clinical side doing health economics and that sort of thing, working with them. And then over the years, my role changed and grew into uh, reimbursement, which is a broad area. So I did that inside industry for, oh, 10 years focusing on reimbursement, government affairs, and moving more into health economic work. And then from there, I went to an even larger company. And then from there, to sum everything up, did independent consulting. And three years ago, I was recruited here to RCRI, Regulatory and Clinical Research Institute here in Minneapolis, to oversee their health economic and reimbursement initiatives. But So it's a long, winding road. There is no degree you can get in reimbursement, unlike regulatory affairs. So a lot of my peers in the industry probably have similar paths, but very interesting pathways. So the long, winding road led you to reimbursement. And you mentioned there's no degree, but if you had to give a 101 course in just a few minutes on just what reimbursement is, how would you explain to someone who's not familiar with it, what it is and maybe the process that these companies have to go through as they bring a product to market? To your first question, uh, reimbursement 101, and the analogy I often use with clients who are startup companies that call in and want help with reimbursement, I tell them this because some people have a misconception of reimbursement of being coding or payer coverage or pricing, and I say it's all three. In fact, reimbursement is a three-legged stool. It's a visual that sticks with people for some reason, and the three legs of the stool are coding, coverage, and payment. You have to have all three elements to have reimbursement. Otherwise, you have self-pay. You don't have a third party like Medicare or the private payers, the Blue Crosses, 
Aetna's of the world paying for it. So let's just briefly talk about those three elements of reimbursement. So coverage is the decision by a payer to pay or not to pay for your product. And that's usually based on whether or not it's medically necessary. That requires a high level of evidence. Coding is the language of billing. You have to have a code associated with that product or technology or service or in vitro diagnostics, or you don't have a pathway to payment. So they tell the payer what the products are or the services and why you're asking for payment for this product. And then payment is the amount the payer is willing to pay for that code if indeed you have coverage. That's a quick high-level overview of reimbursement. There are a lot of devils in the details. For example, coding can vary by site of care. And I spend a lot of time talking to clients. I ask them, where is your primary and secondary sites of care? Hospital, for example, inpatient, the coding pathway is different than a hospital outpatient, and that's different than a clinic or a doctor's office. And that too is different than the home sites of care. Those are the primary sites of care. The types of codes you use to get paid for the product will vary. And sometimes the coverage criteria can vary. And with the three legs of the stool, as you think about a company bringing a product to market, how should they be planning to address each of those three legs of the stool? The way the process normally works, Doug, is when I have an introductory call with a client, for example, I go through a a series of questions talking to them because, again, oftentimes they'll have a misconception of what reimbursement is and they'll say, I need a new code. I got an email from a prospective client the other day, for example, who said, I really want to get reimbursed for this product from Medicare and Medicaid. So they had a set idea in their mind as to what they think they needed. And so my job is to help discuss that with them and flesh it out a little bit. So get back to your question. What I will do is I'll talk to a client and I'll ask them a series of questions about, like I just said, the site of care. What is their technology? What are you trying to treat or diagnose? Because that is a critical fundamental question and where they stand with the FDA because, you know, what's their indication for use? That can help drive my understanding of what to look for when it comes to looking at what I call a reimbursement landscape assessment. So most companies should, if they haven't already done some sort of formal reimbursement landscape assessment to do a snapshot of what the reimbursement landscape looks like in those various sites of care for this type of technology or a technology that's similar. That way you get an idea as to whether or not there are any existing codes out there that they can use. If at all possible, you want to use an existing code, whether it's a diagnostic-related group of codes in the hospital inpatient, codes in the hospital outpatient setting, CPT codes in the doctor's office, and what are called HICPIC codes in the home setting. I'm going through it quite quickly just to give the listener an idea that that's what a reimbursement landscape assessment will do. It'll help them understand what codes may be relevant, what the payment may be attached to those codes. And it's usually based on Medicare because private payers don't reveal their payment. And then take a look at different types of payers, depending on the technology. For example, if it's a technology that is the patient population is mostly Medicare, you're going to want to make sure you understand what the Medicare coding coverage and payment landscape looks like. Private payers, you'll look into what the private payers are saying. Oftentimes, it's both. You start with the process to help them understand it by doing an introductory discussion, learning more about the technology, what potential sites of care there is. what they know so far, what sort of data they may have available already, because you're going to need data. And we'll get to that in a little bit, Doug, I know, and that sort of thing. And then they really have to start with understanding what the reimbursement landscape looks like. And you mentioned the coding and with the landscape assessment, trying to find what codes may be relevant that already exist. What happens if there isn't a code that's maybe perfect, a perfect fit for a device? 
Well, it depends on what type of code it is. And oftentimes they are uh, current procedure codes that are used in the, all sites of care, a doctor will usually bill for that. So let's stick with uh, current procedure terminology codes, CPT codes. What we usually advise our clients to do then is do some sort of literature search to see what sort of evidence is out there in support of this type of technology. And again, you're going to need evidence development to go in front of the American Medical Association. Their CPT review panel makes decisions about whether to grant access to new CPT codes. So to get a permanent CPT code, it can take up to three years and you're going to need strong evidence and professional society support to get a CPT code, for example. And then there are called healthcare procedure codes for products that are used in the home product or services that are used in the, I should say, non-facility setting. Durable medical equipment, technology like that, more and more care is moving into the home. So I'm hearing more about the need to get those type of codes. There's a different pathway to get those type of codes through the Medicare. Medicare oversees access to the HCPCS codes, and that's done through a HCPCS work group. And there's different decision trees you have to go through to make a determination as to whether or not you qualify for access with that code. And it's similar process. Everything nowadays revolves around evidence development. What sort of evidence do you have to show that this technology is unique? Whether or not you're presenting a request for a new code to the AMA or the HCPCS work group, you are going to need evidence development. It's the new mantra in this brave new world of healthcare. You have to show value for your technology. And so oftentimes RCRI, we work with clients, not only in health reimbursement component, but on the clinical study front to determine what evidence needs you have and help you gather the evidence you need with stakeholders to get a new code or to get new coverage. And with that, the idea of evidence development as it relates to reimbursement, how is that different than maybe trials or things where you may be having to demonstrate the function of a device on the regulatory side? Is it the same general evidence? Again, a very good question, Doug, and something that I spend a lot of time talking to prospective clients about. They're different, to answer your question. The FDA, what they care about, as you know, and most listeners will know, is that the technology has to be safe and effective. The FDA doesn't ask you questions about whether or not it's medically necessary. And by medical necessity, that's a standard set by Medicare and many private payers. What they're saying is, is the technology equal to or better in clinical outcomes than the existing standard of care, whatever that treatment or therapy or service is. So you can get a product through the FDA because it's proven in the clinical study to be safe and effective. And the analogy I like to use there, Doug, is getting through the FDA is critical. I don't want to diminish the value of that. You need that. What that is, it's given you a permit to market your technology in the United States. But I like to use the sports analogy. Pick a sport, whatever sport you like, soccer, football, baseball. You're either going to be sitting on the sidelines or in the dugout if you get through the FDA but have no reimbursement, i.e. coverage, coding, and payment. Because the way you score points and make money and profit in this healthcare environment is to have some form of reimbursement. And to do that, you have to get on the playing field and find a pathway to reimbursement. So they are different. The FDA and the pathway to get through the FDA is very different in many ways than it is to demonstrate medical necessity. And to demonstrate medical necessity, I go back to what sort of clinical evidence do you have to show that this product is equal to or better than the existing technology and also more and more nowadays is to show that it's cost effective because of the extreme costs we find with costs in healthcare are growing up. I think there's one chart I saw from Kaiser a few months ago showing that at this rate, healthcare costs are going to be 
by 2023 are going to be 20 plus percent of GDP. And we all know that that can't be sustained. So medical payers, Medicare, other private payers are really looking at showing the value, cost effectiveness, and that's where health economics comes into the equation. So it's reimbursement and also health economics, which is showing the cost effectiveness of a new technology. And for that, you need studies that have a strong design are going to give you a better chance of coverage. Peer-reviewed published studies are preferred. You know, you have to, again, show that it's better than the established alternative. The more expensive the technology, then the higher the hierarchy of evidence that will be required. And as you work with companies on their reimbursement strategy, is it usually the evidence? Is that usually where they're weakest? <laughs> yes, I would say that seems to be the case, especially with startups, right? Because they're going out there and trying to seek help from investors and and they're initial focus is to get the product developed and designed appropriately. And they're thinking, I got to get through the FDA. I have to get through the FDA. And so, you know, if it's a 510K type of product, sometimes you don't need clinical studies, but more and more companies are going with the uh, FDA de novo pathway and some are pre-market approval, a class three technologies that are high risk. And so for those type of technologies, they definitely need some sort of clinical trial and study, but they are primarily focused on the FDA. So again, we spend a lot of our time working with companies and the companies that uh, think early about this, and I encourage companies to do that, should also be thinking about, if I have to do a clinical study here, can I start gathering evidence, not only to show that it's safe and effective to get through the FDA, but also maybe develop some endpoints either through the clinical study itself or what we call a piggyback study or other economic development, data development initiatives so that we can gather evidence at the same time we're spending this time and effort and money getting through the FDA, gather evidence for a downstream decision makers like Medicare or private payers who are going to want to know this. So sometimes if you can do it and you can build those data points and gather that evidence as part of the initial FDA trial. It kind of fits with that holistic picture that I think our CRI views the world with, which is all of these reimbursement regulatory, they are, even though they're separate processes, they're very much connected and related. I think that's sort of what we've found and respected from talking with you. Yes. And from a selfish perspective, whenever I talk to a new client, I ask them, where they stand with regulatory. And I appreciate the situations where I can, maybe they started off with somebody in our regulatory department and our regulatory people know early on that there's also a question as to reimbursement here and how they're gonna get paid for it essentially. So they will walk down the hall to me and say, Tom, you should join this call. And so that's the integrated approach that we offer to, to your point, Doug. Whereas it makes it a lot easier helping the client upstream. For example, a couple of clients that will change your indication for use because they found that the indication for use that they were thinking of didn't create quite as clear a pathway to reimbursement as tweaking it a little bit with the new indication for use. I don't want to overstate that, but I have had that happen. And my point is expressing the idea that an integrated approach to thinking about reimbursement and regulatory pathways as early as possible together is very important. And from a company perspective, like you said, we, as investors, I know, spend a lot of time thinking about regulatory. The company spend a lot of time thinking about regulatory. When should they start thinking about their reimbursement strategy? I would say as soon as you start talking to somebody about your regulatory initiatives, it doesn't hurt to have an initial call with somebody in reimbursement who knows about reimbursement and health economics as well. 
you know, you may not need that right away, reimbursement help, but it surely does help and definitely doesn't hurt to learn more about, okay, I see how this is unfolding with my initiatives with the FDA. I don't really need reimbursement help right now, but oftentimes when I've had those initial calls with my regulatory team with potential clients, we develop an action plan. So they will say, okay, we're going to hit these benchmarks with the FDA, but at this point, we want to bring you back in, Tom, and talk to you about health economic development. In fact, and I'm not just saying that just this morning, I opened up my email and had a call from this client in Europe who said, okay, we're at this point with our study with the FDA, Tom, and now we want to bring your team in to help us with developing a uh, parallel initiative to do some piggyback clinical work together and health economic endpoints for this technology. So my answer is start as early as you can, at least with talking to somebody in reimbursement. You may not need their help right away. So don't be scared away about, oh my God, I'm trying to raise money to get through the FDA and now I have to do this. No, you just have to learn more about it. I remember from last time we talked, You mentioned something to the effect that more and more, it seems like you're seeing companies that maybe have gotten a code, but the payment isn't that great. How does that happen? And what can companies do to maybe improve on the payment side, which seems to almost be like the final piece of the stool Yeah, as an afterthought? First of all, keep in mind that when I assess payment and coding, I have to go to the Medicare and Medicare sets payment attached to a particular CPT code, like say a CPT code for widget X, you get $100 by Medicare. And that's all you're going to get no matter what you do. Now, private payers can negotiate and they usually pay for a CPT code 15 to 20% more than what Medicare would pay for that. Sometimes more depending on how the provider negotiates with the payer. So, That's how payment works associated with coding primarily. If you go after a new code, then you can negotiate with the decision makers as to what the value of that code is. I know, for example, with HCPCA codes with Medicare, you demonstrate to them utilization and what cost is and that sort of thing. So it's a long deliberative process, but that's the way payment is attached to code. So with existing codes, you're stuck with what Medicare already pays. When you're working with, uh, and I haven't gotten into this so much, with diagnostic-related group of codes that in the hospital inpatient setting for a technology or service that's used in inpatient, they're all paid for under what we call a diagnostic-related group. Think of it as a bucket that's full. And for all the services, hospital care, surgery, everything is associated with that diagnostic-related group of codes. Cabbage procedure, coronary artery bypass procedure, grafting procedure, for example, I don't know what the exact payment is, let's say it's 25,000. Anything the physician does, the facility, the surgery, the nursing care, the equipment, the supplies, the time in the hospital, all be paid under that one DRG. If you bring in a new technology into that hospital setting, you better show the hospital that your technology is better than the existing alternative because they have a limited amount of money they'll pay there. Sometimes you can get the new technology add-on code in those type of settings, hospital outpatient and hospital inpatient, where you have an innovative technology. And when these DRG codes were created, the uh, decision makers didn't have this information about the advantages of this new technology. So there are opportunities to go ahead and get more payment for a limited amount of time for these new technologies or services in the hospital inpatient and outpatient settings. That makes sense. Okay. One other question I had related to payments is in the pharma world, like we're seeing a lot of 
or at least some move to sort of cash pay and some of these online telemedicine-based services are cash only. Is there any equivalent or a different process if a company wanted to focus on cash-based payments instead of insurance? Well, obviously reimbursement is totally focused on the third-party payment insurance of some sort, right? There are a lot more alternative payment structures being created, but cash pay is just simply that it's outside of my realm. If for some reason a company feels that, and sometimes this does happen, they want to check into whether a third party will pay for a certain type of technology or service. And they often come to me when they started as cash pay thinking, well, I've done cash pay, that's okay, but I know the big money's in third party reimbursement. So I'm not that familiar if there is alternative strictly cash pay, you just pay cash. But I know there are alternative payment models being created, bundled payment, you know, all these different types of accountable care organizations growing up through Medicare and private payers where certain types of technology, orthopedics I'm thinking of in particular, technologies, if you can show that your orthopedic technology creates advantages, you can help bear the risk and also reap the reward through these hospital organizations that are linking up with doctors and others. But that's a capped payment system. That's not a cash grade system. That makes sense. Tom, last question, and maybe it's a bigger one, but as you think about just companies and, and helping companies listening to this podcast, what are some of the biggest mistakes you've seen companies make in developing their reimbursement strategies, aside from maybe just starting too late? It's starting too late or not starting at all. I have to say that that's, um, they just don't think about it, Doug, oftentimes. I think that is the biggest mistake. But once they start, I think it's evidence development, not thinking about that, especially if it's a technology that, for example, if you do the reimbursement landscape assessment, you're going to know what the payers are saying about coverage for this type or a similar type of technology. And spending the time and money Early on, I know it's hard because I know they have limited budgets and that sort of thing, but finding some way to gather some type of evidence development. Health economics is a very important area, I would say, that companies should spend more time on. And one other thing I will say is that they have to learn early on what the payers are thinking. We're doing more and more of that here at RCRI, where we have expertise in going into payers early on and doing surveys, one-on-one communication with key payers, high-level chief medical officers at these payers, finding out from them exactly what they think. And it's blinded, so they don't technically know who you are and you don't know who they are. But through the intermediary, the companies can learn a lot more about what the payers really think about this technology and whether or not the capability they have to get coverage by the payer if they follow a certain standards. For example, I'll give you a good quick example. We just had a payer survey back and the focus of that was on, you have a very good technology. It seems to fit a unique niche. Now what you're gonna have to do is start working more with specialty societies because we're gonna pay attention to their guidelines. Another company, they found out that it's going to be a harder road to hoe after they got the payer survey back as to they're going to have to do more evidence development on their own and probably involve some new clinical studies, health economic studies, in addition to garnering society support. We're going to need it either way, but it's just a higher standard. So just getting that information from payers and evidence development right away when you know that you have issues and not letting it languish too long. Once you get on the market and commercialize it, you're going to find that it's not going to be paid for for various reasons that you should know earlier through your assessment as to whether or not it's because of a flaw with the codes. The payment level with those existing codes are just lack of evidence on medical necessity by the payers, not enough study development or different types of evidence. Yeah, those payer surveys sound 
really useful. And that's, I think, great advice to end on for our listeners is don't neglect your reimbursement strategy. And Tom, thank you very much for the time and for educating us on the process. Thank you, Doug. 